Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Elliot Whitehill lives in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Oh, see, I'm not see, I at the Pequilasalton Tanitsanakis Nanaimoch. I'd say I've got Quanzalops Kakipa Tanaquail. So my name is Quilasalton. I'm Elliot Whitehill from the Nanaimoch First Nation. I'm a Cove Salish artist and storyteller. Throughout his career, his art has been inspired by indigenous Coast Salish motifs and iconography, things like ravens, wolves, and thunderbirds. But recently, he's been captivated by another animal, the woolly dog. Where I'm from, on Vancouver Island, we didn't have mountain goats or sheep or anything like that. And so instead, we had these little fluffy dogs that we sheared to use their hair as fiber in weaving. As I started to dig more, more of the oral history from my community came up through speaking with elders and, and people in my family, learning about stories about them. Like uh, in Snanemoch, where I come from, uh, there's a place called Cameron Island. And in our language, it's squeak me. And squeak me means little wool dogs. And so that whole island was like a dog sanctuary for the village site that was right where downtown Nanaimo is now. Inspired by stories handed down through generations, Elliot Whitehill is currently working on a children's book about these woolly dogs. The story involves the mischievous raven who managed to trick woolly dogs into, well, swapping their derrieres. And so that's why dogs sniff each other's butts. They're trying to figure out if it's theirs or not. It's so cheeky, no pun intended. You know, the, the, the humor in it is what I love. Outside of alpacas, woolly dogs were one of the few indigenous animals providing wool in the Americas. And for centuries, woolly dogs were at the center of tribal life throughout the Coast Salish world. Among the Snenemok, First Nation, high-ranking women took care of the dogs. The woolly canines were even given special treatment like their own private islands and salmon diet. And they were given this treatment because weaving was revered, and these dogs played an instrumental role in the craft. Their hair was the raw material for blankets and wool coverings. Traditionally, the blankets are almost like a currency to us, where you'd have your family, the women in the community, weaving them. And then you would give them away at potlatches or you'd wear them like they're the swakwath. They're like uh, nobility blankets. So they're major symbols of wealth. And to us, through potlatching, you become wealthy by giving away, which is kind of at the core of, of our culture and our socioeconomic systems. The significance of the blankets and the value brought to our communities through their weaving and through the fibers that are used, uh, it can't be understated. The creator provided the woolly dog with a fiber that would retain the energy of prayer. That's Michael Pavel, an elder and culture bearer with the Skokomish Indian Nation just north of Shelton on the Olympic Peninsula. He says that to the Skokomish, woolly dogs were relatives. This isn't just an article of clothing, for example, but this was a life force that we would envelop ourselves in, wrap ourselves in, and we would feel the power of that prayer. And one might say it warms us, and it did indeed, but it touched our very souls. What they offered us as humans is really quite remarkable because they had a spiritual power. 
And one of their spiritual powers was unconditional love, as well as loyalty and devotion, a zeal for life. In the mid-1800s, woolly dogs began to disappear. Forced assimilation practices pulled indigenous children in the United States and Canada away from their families and traditions, including weaving practices. Up until recently, the prevailing narrative from historians and anthropologists about what happened to the dogs was that labor-intensive combing, shearing, and weaving of their fleece was abandoned in favor of machine-made blankets. But that narrative doesn't ring true to tribal members because of how sacred woolly dogs and their blankets were within Native societies. Here's Michael again. The loss of the woolly dog always has to be discussed in the context of intergenerational grief, historical trauma, and to look back and not only were so many of our relatives who we saw as woolly dogs, succumbed to the effects of colonization, genocide, and assimilation. But so many humans lost their lives as well. We look back at that period of time in grief, and we have to recover from that grief. Again, these dogs have been considered extinct since the 19th century. Despite their disappearance for decades, indigenous tribes have handed down their knowledge and customs around woolly dogs. But there was little scientific data about their fate. That all changed recently. It turns out that there is a woolly dog pelt on the other side of the country in Washington, D.C. For 160 years, the Smithsonian has been holding on to a woolly dog pelt deep in its archived collections. That dog is called Mutton, and scientists have recently taken an interest in what Mutton's pelt can tell us about the genetic makeup of indigenous pre-colonial dogs. In collaboration with Coast Salish tribes, Smithsonian researcher Audrey Lynn is hoping to broaden our understanding of this Northwest canine's genetics and role in Coast Salish life. I recently caught up with Lynn to hear more about why these dogs disappeared and how they might, maybe, come back. Woolly dogs have been lost to us directly as a result of colonialism, essentially. They had been maintained, very carefully maintained by the Coast Salish for many thousands of years. And there were concerted efforts by the colonial governments to assimilate the indigenous uh, peoples and to criminalize cultural practices. And a lot of the cultural practices, the knowledge, it went underground. It was performed in secret. But it's really hard, you know, to keep dogs secret, <laughs> you know. So they were one of the first casualties of colonialism in the area, which is, you know, incredibly sad. And what do we know about the role of woolly dogs in Coast Salish life and what people used the woolly dog hair for? So Mutton, he's a spitz dog. They all have upright ears. They have pointed noses. They're they're very fluffy and they have curled tails like Akitas, Shebas, Samoyeds, Siberian Huskies, Malamutes. These are all spitzes. He looks a lot like a Samoyed, except he is much smaller. He's maybe the size of a Corgi, but with longer legs. And his coat is very different compared to Samoyed and other really fluffy, hairy spitz dogs. 
His hair has kind of the texture of wool fibers. Like it's the kind of hair that wants to, it wants to be spun. It wants to be transformed into, into yarn. So they were kept because sheep were only introduced much, much later. And also mountain goat wool was pretty difficult to obtain. So what they did have were domestic dogs. So they had very carefully, selectively bred their domestic dogs for their hair. They have really beautiful, thick fleeces with a very long, thick undercoat, very different from dogs uh, today. And these dogs were kept by high-ranking women in the communities, and they were fed special diets to keep their, their coats you know, nice and shiny. And they were also kept reproductively isolated from the other uh, dogs in the villages, like other hunting dogs or other village dogs that were there. And the ways of woolly dog maintenance seems to differ I think, depending on the communities, for example, some communities uh, kept their woolly dogs on islands. And there are reports by explorers and explorers' letters and journals of seeing like women with these big flocks of woolly dogs in a canoe with her. She's taking them over to the islands. Or there's also some other communities that had kept them um, inside with them, and other communities kept them, like the Skokomish uh, in, in Washington state, they kept the dogs in, in special pens. So they were really important, and it wasn't just a, a functional role uh, of, of these dogs. They weren't just a source for their fleece. They were also really important members of the community as well. And so people would actually shear these dogs like you would with an alpaca or a sheep and then weave the fur into into woven goods? Or how, how would they actually use the fur or the, the fleece? The removal of the fleece also seems to depend on the community. The hair would be combed out, but other times they would be shorn like sheep. And then the... Fleece would be processed, cleaned with diatomaceous earth, and they would spin the wool on these big spindle whorls. And you can see a lot of these uh, spindle whorls that had been made by the Coast Salish in various uh, museums around the world that, you know, just big, beautiful carved art, you know, on, on the whorls. And then after the fleece has been spun into yarn, and, you know, it's also sometimes mixed with fibers from other things like mountain goat and plant fibers, you know, to get whatever properties the weaver wanted. Then after you have the yarn, you would start weaving. And the blankets that are made from the yarn, it's they're just beautiful. And every step of creating the textile from just raising the dog uh, to the weaving, it's very carefully done. It's very sacred. So what was repeated for years in that these dogs had disappeared because of the adoption of cheap machine woven blankets, it, it completely doesn't make sense in the context of you know what is important culturally to the Coast Salish. Like they would have never willingly given up this practice just to, you know, just for expediency. 
So let's talk about mutton specifically. This is a specimen in the Smithsonian's collections. It's been around since 1859. The pelt has been in the collection. What's the story of how you came across mutton, the woolly dog's pelt? So we actually don't know exactly which village mutton came from uh, originally, but we think that he probably came from Dolo Nation territories when he was picked up by George Gibbs. So he was a naturalist, an explorer, ethnographer, and he had been hired by the United States government to be part of the Northwest Boundary Survey, you know, mapping the boundary between what is now Washington State and and British Columbia. And he was hired because of the command of the indigenous languages in the area. And also at the same time, he had been mapping out the wildlife that he found as he was exploring and sending natural history specimens to Washington, D.C. in what was the precursor to the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, I believe it was called the, the National Museum at the time. And so some of the first natural history collections that we have came from him. So he was in the area and at some point he picked up Mutton uh, and Mutton was his pet. He was his pet dog. A diary entry in one of George Gibbs's journals in December of that year said that Mutton was sick in December, I believe, 1859. And so we think that he probably had gotten just ill very quickly and then died. And then Gibbs had decided to make a pelt out of him and then sent the pelt to D.C. I guess Gibbs had recognized the, well, maybe hadn't fully grasped the significance of a woolly dog as a unique specimen. But at the time, these explorers such as Gibbs, they were pretty much sending everything for the purpose of building up a museum collection. So this was this was a pretty common practice, but it's it's to our benefit because mutton's the only known woolly dog pelt that we have. So if if Gibbs hadn't done that in late 1859, early 1860, then there still would be a lot of mysteries about woolly dogs. So you had a hunch of where mutton came from, which was present-day British Columbia, and you had its pelt. What kind of information can your team glean from mutton? I mean, we're talking about biologists, archaeologists, anthropologists, um, you know, looking at the chemical composition. What information is held in mutton's pelt? What have you found? To begin with, I wanted to know if mutton was an indigenous North American dog, also referred to in the scientific literature as a PCD dog, a pre-colonial dog, a pre-contact dog. By this time, the mid to late 1800s, a lot of these PCD dogs had gone extinct. And woolly dogs Culturally, they had been reproductively isolated from the general dog population. Not only that, but they had been maintained, you know, as a separate population for a very, very long time, predating when the European settlers and explorers had arrived. So, yeah, that was the first initial scientific question. 
And the other things that aren't ancestry related, well, if there's anything in his DNA that would have resulted in his very unique phenotype that we don't see in, in dogs today, because we're also talking about an extinct lineage of dogs. So that was something that, that we were hoping for when we had started studying Mutton's genomics. And we found that, indeed, he was a pre-colonial dog. 85% was pre-colonial, only 15% was introduced European settler dog that had been introduced very recently, probably within a couple of generations. We also had found that he there were gene variants in mutton that are associated with woolly hair in humans, with uh, skin and hair follicle development, that are only seeing in, in mutton, in mutton's lineage, and in no other canids. So that shows the unusual genotype resulting in the very unique phenotype of woolly dogs. That would have only been possible if there had been very careful, selective breed management of these dogs over a long period of time. Oh, and we also had found signatures of inbreeding that... You can only see in dogs that have been kept like a small breeding population. So yeah, we, we learned all of these things from mutton, from just one dog. Part of your research is focused on using the two-eye seeing lens to have a more holistic view of history and the anthropology of what you're looking at. Talk to me about the way that two-eye seeing works and also how it helped you understand what probably happened to these dogs. We would have never been able to get a clear picture of what had happened to these dogs without the contributions of the Coast Salish, without their stories, without that context. I mean, if we had just sequenced Mutton's genome, we would have been able to learn things about his ancestry, we still would have identified the genes variants associated with woolly hair, with hair follicle growth, with skin, but we wouldn't have really understood why, why it is, why these dogs were so different. It would have been a lot of guesswork. But given that we have these stories, uh, the oral histories, the traditional knowledge from um, the Coast Salish, we understand why these dogs are so unusual, like genetically. I know some of the Coast Salish weavers and folks who want to preserve this history have talked about the idea of bringing the practice back of husbanding woolly dogs and having some way of renewing this work. I know that everybody's seen Jurassic Park, the idea of, you know, bringing back the actual original DNA of a woolly dog. Is that just science fiction? I mean, what would the process look like to actually bring woolly dog management back to indigenous communities? Well, there is no way of literally cloning mutton like that just can't be done from a single genome as fragmented uh, as it is. Like when they talk about, for example, de-extincting the woolly mammoth, it's not really cloning a mammoth or, or bringing them back literally. It's more augmenting the genome of like an Asian elephant so it looks like a woolly mammoth. <laughs> It'd be very expensive and like I don't think it would be a realistic uh, approach for 
bringing back the practice of keeping woolly dogs. No, I think that if this is done, it's through the selective management of breeding existing dogs today and to a forum that the Coast Salish would like the woolly dog to, to have. The importance isn't the genetics, the ancestry. The importance is the cultural significance of the dogs, the relationship that they have with the dogs, but also the quality of the hair fiber. Just before we go, any final thoughts about the significance of this research into mutton and woolly dogs and what more there is to know about this animal and its significance for Coast Salish people? I think this is just like a really good example of the sort of uneasy tension that these old museums, you know, with with these massive collections have with communities, with countries that had been colonized and, and plundered, you know, like even specifically with the Coast Salish, a lot of the practices, the cultural practices had been lost. And even though the the weaving knowledge was maintained because it had gone underground, there still were a lot of specificities, you know, that had been lost. So this renaissance of of weaving that started in the 1980s, it wouldn't have happened if there weren't these textiles, if there weren't the the Coast Salish blankets that had been held in museum collections all, all this time. It's an uneasy relationship, but I am hoping that it is possible to be able to work with and to collaborate with the descendant communities. We definitely have a responsibility to move towards, well, reconciliation, for sure. That was Audrey Lynn, Research Associate in Anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And for some final thoughts on the woolly dog, in our conversations with Elliot Whitehill from the Snenemoc First Nation in British Columbia and Michael Pavel with the Skokomish Indian Nation, we heard that there's a kind of renaissance going on in the Coast Salish wool-weaving world. Michael says there were only a handful of weavers a few decades ago, but over the years that small group has blossomed into thousands as interest in traditional weaving has skyrocketed. Michael says a connection to the past through weaving creates a sense of community that spans generations. And the woolly dog, it's as much a spiritual part of that community as it was physically. It is so easy for us to um, fall back into a terminology that has us say, we raised, we bred these dogs for their wool. But they were relatives and we cared for them. They taught us several important things that are always essential to our humanity. And that is, we need to work together. We're good individually, but we're so much better together. And to witness that with weavers in sessions where there's whole community members from the youngest to the oldest, learning weaving right now is exciting. For artist Elliot Whitehill, the story of the woolly dog gives a nuanced view of life for Coast Salish people. It starts to break down uh, people's understanding of us as a hunter-gatherer society, which is such a simplistic uh, kind of blanket understanding of Indigenous people in general here in North America and in this part of the world. 
where really there are systems in place that our relationship with the woolly dog is a part of that are so much more complex than a hunter-gatherer society. You know, we have in, in the Coast Salish world, we have our relationship with the camas plant, the camas patches, or the clam beds in our territories and the ways that we maintain the forests and the land. And it was really something that is profoundly more complex than the simplistic understandings that tend to be prominent within, uh, you know, the public, really, when it comes to talking about Indigenous people. That, I think, is really uh, where the, the work of reconciliation can be done. It comes from understanding and, and empathy, you know, that, that sense of understanding is a place where empathy can flourish. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. <laughs>